Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Aussies Assemble. I'm your host, Maisha, and this podcast explores controversial public health topics ranging from new healthcare initiatives to the principles of public health itself. Today, we'll be discussing the second principle of public health, prolonging life. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mohan, Jethan, and Alan, all of whom are public health experts from the University of Waterloo. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you very much. Maisha, thanks for having me. I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. It's an honor. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Now, on behalf of our newest viewers, I'd like to ask you, what exactly is public health? Well, I'm glad you asked, Maisha. Um, I think the best way to start off is by giving the fundamental definition of it. So, according to the World Health Organization, public health is defined as the art and science of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts of society. Expanding on the definition that Alan just gave, the World Health Organization also looks to strengthen the quality of public health services. In addition to that, they look to discuss what the wider determinants of health are with health professionals. Essentially, health professionals are the ones dealing with disease and serious medical conditions, and they will know what can be done from a public health standpoint to eliminate the determinants that cause the onset of these medical conditions. Adding to my colleagues, in the 21st century, some challenges in developed countries include aging populations, widening health inequalities caused by differences in socioeconomic groups, and increasing levels of chronic diseases, switching the focus of treatment from communicable diseases to prolong the life of people with chronic diseases. In order to deal with these challenges, different public health strategies and policies are implemented to improve the overall health of the population. Thanks, guys. Now that we have a general understanding of public health, let's dive deeper into the main topic for today's episode, prolonging life. As you've all mentioned, prolonging life has been and will continue to be an important challenge addressed by public health professionals. The 2015 Global Burden of Disease data indicates that life expectancies are increasing. However, healthy life expectancies are not increasing at the same rate. Do you have any thoughts on this? In the 21st century, the rise of new technologies and medicinal advancements has led to higher life expectancies. However, the increase in quantity of life in developed countries should be accompanied by the improvements in quality of life as well. The World Health Organization perfectly summarizes this by stating that adding years to life is an empty victory without adding life to years. The compression of morbidity is a concept proposed by James Price that says that the onset of disease can be delayed to compress or reduce that a time a person lives with a disease or disability. Measures of life expectancy such as health-adjusted life expectancy or HALE need to be considered as a vital population health outcome. Public health strategies that are aimed at prolonging life need to consider HALE since it allows for closer look at the expansion and compression of morbidity as well as the overall quality of life in a population. Now, could you give me an example of one of these public health strategies in practice? For sure. One of the earliest models shaping promotion practices for the purpose of prolonging life is the health belief model. This says that every person has a perception of their susceptibility to a disease and this along with modifying factors such as biological and social determinants of health impact how likely a person is to take action regarding their health. This was initially developed to promote preventative behaviors that prolong life such as screening. From a public health standpoint, one of the most relevant examples of screening is cancer screening. Did you know that one in two Canadians will develop cancer over their lifetime and 30% of deaths in Ontario are caused by cancer? Thus, the Cancer Care Ontario was made to carry out public health strategies to reduce the number of people who die from this disease 
and prolong life by initiating the cancer survivorship process. Screening tests can help doctors find a cancer at an earlier, more treatable stage, which leads to more successful treatments and prolonging life in the population. So, how do you encourage susceptible individuals to get screened for cancer? I'm glad you asked, Maisha. Cancer Care Ontario runs province-wide organized screening programs for three types of cancer, breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer. And these programs involve sending letters to people to invite them to participate in screening. It reminds them when it is time for their next screening and also tells them the results of their screening. This kind of program ties into the health belief model because by promoting cancer screenings to a susceptible population who were made aware of benefits of screening, we can increase the number of people who take action to get screened. As a whole, this strategy improves the quantity and quality of life in the population. Mohad, could you add on to this, please? I think that the idea of prolonging life is under great debate. For me, the most important point in Canada is ensuring that the enabled principle of the Ottawa Charter is followed. This ensures that people are able to reach their fullest health potential through equal opportunities and resources. I think it's vital that we focus on quality adjusted life years and we look to ensure that everyone has an equal opportunity to achieve more years of life with a higher quality of health status. As we've discussed, life expectancy projections suggest that Canadians are living with chronic diseases for longer. How can we support individuals in the later stages of chronic disease? A problematic issue taking place in the current health care system is most people with terminal diseases are being treated for these diseases with the intention of curing until death. The treatment plan for individuals with terminal illnesses need to switch from care to care. Many physicians are using treatment plans that do not involve looking at the quality of life of an individual. With that being said, treatment courses need to be adjusted to deal with the influx of chronic disease patients in the upcoming years. One of the dominant issues in the public health system currently is polypharmacy. Patients with chronic conditions are being prescribed multiple different prescriptions that are excessive for the patient. Not only is this detrimental to the quality of life for patients, it also creates a large economic burden for the healthcare system. In efforts to improve the quality of life for individuals with chronic illnesses, deprescribing is the best course of action. Deprescribing involves a planned process of reducing the dosage or stopping of the medication that no longer offers any benefits or poses harms to the patient. This allows patients to take medications that focus on symptomatic treatment to increase a patient's well-being. One of the most important factors is the shift from terminal illness treatment to end-of-life care, as the focus moves from cure to care, like Jutin just mentioned. We need to take more of a look at polypharmacy. In Canada, nearly 70% of seniors take 5 or more drugs, while 10% take 15 or more. These numbers are very surprising. According to several recent studies, many hospitalizations are caused by adverse medication reactions, and as one of the biggest health hazards for seniors is falling, the use of multiple medications can cause cognitive difficulties and affect balance. As these medications are an important component of prolonging life, this needs to be examined. According to an article written by Alan Castles from CBC, physicians are more focused on looking to de-prescribe as 90% of seniors say they would like to reduce the number of medications that they use. My colleagues brought up some great points regarding polypharmacy. The biggest takeaway is that although medications are an essential part of prolonging life, we should simultaneously maintain the quality of their lives by deprescribing drugs appropriately. That's very interesting. Do you have any suggestions for how we can shift from cure to care from a public health standpoint? Sure, Marisha. 
To prevent problem pharmacy from occurring and shifting course of treatment from cure to care, more public health policies need to be implemented to help with deprescribing. With that, with this being said, physicians in Ontario should be given resources such as the Beers Criteria to help with this change in healthcare. The Beers Criteria is a definitive guide on medications to give and not to give to older adults. Older adults are those mainly affected by poor pharmacies and are the ones that need their treatment to be shifted from cure to care. Beers Criteria is a simple guide that can help older adults from experiencing adverse effects from combinations of different medications. This also has a low cost associated with it, with it since it only costs $10 to access and can tremendously make a difference in improving the quality of life in older adults. Deprescribing deals with the shift from curing disease to symptom management. Another component of cure to care is end of life care. Why is it so important in the context of prolonging life? The purpose of end of life care is to provide comfort and dignity for patients with a life-threatening disease as stated by Health Quality Ontario. This approach of end-of-life care in Ontario helps meets the needs of people with life-threatening diseases, including helping them live longer and dying comfortably. With that being said, dying comfortably for many means staying at home for the last few months they have to live. Ontario provides publicly funded end-of-life care services in homes that involve physician visits, nursing care, personal support, and physical therapy. The foundation for providing support for individuals choosing end-of-life care at home is clearly offered. However, even with the support provided, there is a clear discrepancy between low-income and high-income families that receive end-of-life care at home. Health Ontario says the cost of end-of-life care at home is $25,000. $6,400 of the cost is associated with health care services, and this is covered by public funds. However, it is estimated that caregivers lose an average of $17,000 in wages and another $700 in out-of-pocket expenses. These additional expenses are not covered by public funds and is why only 39% of patients living in the poorest neighborhoods receive end-of-life care in their last month of living compared to 46.3% in the richest neighborhoods. Those statistics are really surprising. I hope the government has taken some measures at least to support caregivers of those in the late stages of chronic illness. There are policies set in place to cover the cost of these lost wages. The Employment Insurance Act from the federal government provides up to six months of leave for caregivers. In order to claim this, it is very difficult since a physician needs to prove that the individual is six months away from death, which is very difficult to predict. In addition, the CRA lets caregivers claim tax credits. However, even with these policies set in place, the numbers indicate these policies have been ineffective since lower income families are less likely to choose end of life care at home. Now that we've heard from our public health experts, let's imagine a scenario together. Put yourself in the shoes of a caregiver whose loved one is in the late stage of a chronic illness. The illness is incurable and your options are either intensive or end of life care. This means that you can either extend the life of your loved one for a few more weeks or months or promise them comfort in the time that remains. How would you prioritize the quality and quantity of life for your loved one? Should we invest public health dollars into prolonging life or establishing robust end-of-life care that ensures the best possible quality of life towards the end of the disease course? Let us know what you think via Instagram. Public health has made significant progress over the last few decades towards prolonging life around the world. From developing vaccines, to caregiver support programs, to national strategies for dementia in Canada, and cancer survivorship in the U.S., 
we have come a long way. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for coming and sharing your expertise on prolonging life. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about the principles of public health, the World Health Organization is your place to go. Until next time, stay curious, stay healthy, and have a great week, Gauzies. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Now that we've all introduced ourselves, let's jump right into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Aussies Assemble. I'm your host, Maisha, and this podcast explores controversial public health topics, ranging from new healthcare initiatives to the principles of public health itself. Today, we will be discussing the second principle of public health, prolonging life. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mohan, Jethan, and Alan, all of whom are public health experts from the University of Waterloo. How are you all doing today? Aussies, assemble. All music used in this podcast was obtained from Alan Silvestri or obtained from copyright free sources.